0: No, just I'm gonna ignore that you even asked me that. Doug's secret place. This radioactivity is coming from Brian Suits Mm. on KFI. I would bomb the (laughs) shit out of (laughs) him. Dark Secret Place with Brian Suits on KFI. KFI AM 640 more stimulating talk. It is a Dark Secret Place. Our weekly descent into uh, the war on terror, military technology stuff, junk, movie reviews and uh, the world of intelligence and uh, etc. It's uh, ironic. You, you, hear, you hear that clip there uh, in, in, my, in my open where Trump says I would bomb the... Place with Brian Suits on KFI. Where I'm where, well, going go back to it. Right? <laughs> KFI. I would bomb the shit out of them. Yeah, well, uh, we had a exercise that was uh, weeks and weeks and weeks in the planning. Uh, and in fact, the North Koreans had even said that they weren't that offended by them as uh, one, one of their concessions as we uh, head into this June summit between Donald Trump and Kim Jong-un. But uh, they uh, they did complain about actually seeing airplanes that would bomb the ass out of somebody. And so the, uh, the United States uh, actually canceled uh, the B-52 participation in an upcoming uh, exercise. So, so that and more failures. We'll, we'll get to that uh, this hour. Next hour, uh, an interesting thing. <clears throat> when when I was in Iraq in 2004 and 2005 as an infantry officer, uh, all three times that I was wounded, I was wounded by the, the members of uh, this one cleric, a Shia cleric by the name of Muqtada Sadr, and he had a militia called the Jaish al-Mahdi, the Mahdi Army. And I'll explain next year what that, what that means. But he just won the election in Iraq. So the, this was a guy who uh, was the shoot-on-sight enemy of the U.S. in 2004 and 2005, who spent most of his time in Iran, and uh, he just won the election and the democracy that, that we set up. So the, so everyone prepare your irony needles on this one cuz they they just might break. The reason I bring this up is cuz a friend of mine uh was interviewed on uh, national public radio yesterday and I'll play for you some of his remarks uh next hour cuz he was he, they reached out to him, a friend of mine from the Oregon Army National Guard, and his reaction to seeing the guy that was trying to kill us when in between killing our friends uh win an election in uh, in Iraq. So it, it would be it would be uh, I guess, analogous to Hermann Goering, uh, you know, making it out on parole. And then in 1955, running for office and being elected chancellor of Germany or something like that. That's, that's the only analogy I can make with that. We'll, we'll get to that. Well, so it was uh, quite a week uh, between Washington, D.C. and North Korea. The North Koreans appeared to have changed uh, some of their tone. Whereas a month ago, everything uh, was was peaches and cream and uh, unicorns and rainbows uh, looking like the summit between the U.S., North Korea, and South Korea was, was practically preordained to be successful. And then things started to go sideways, um, primarily because what the North Koreans expected to happen would be that between, um, say, three weeks ago and June – that the United States would not be doing any victory laps because, after all, nothing had happened yet, right? The negotiations or or the summit, we don't even know if it's going to last one hour because it hasn't happened yet. So before you start booking your hotels for Oslo, where the Nobel Peace Prize is awarded, as opposed to Stockholm, where the rest of the Nobel Prizes are awarded, uh, before you book your room uh, for uh, Trump, Moon, Kim, Nobel Peace Prize 2019 uh, you might want to catch up on on some of the headlines here was probably the the biggest gaff and I'll, I'll I'll play the audio for you it's it's a bit confusing but but as the North Koreans began uh, earlier this week to um, start to quibble about uh, w- whether or not they even wanted to uh, Commit to this negotiation, this summit that they'd already committed to, uh, and and in doing so, they're they're baiting an ancient hook. This is something that North Koreans have done for seventy years, is to dangle negotiations in front of the UN or the United States or South Korea, and uh, in in dangling, they sort of obviously are virtually committing to actually wanting the meeting. And when they get the other side to commit and say, yeah, let's talk about family reunion. Let's talk about fishing rights, whatever. Once once the negotiation is agreed to, then the North Koreans begin to pull the line back and say, well, you know what? Maybe we don't want to after all. And the South Koreans and prior American administrations have learned not to bite on that hook. Don't let them set the hook. Don't pencil it in. Don't say we agree to a negotiation because you really, anyone who's a pro with North Korea knows that you never really agreed to a negotiation. So in the case of the North Koreans, that happened again this week. And uh, in in and the reason they do it is because uh, they are used to American regimes and South Korean regimes that will, before the meeting is ever fully agreed to, will give something up just so that the North Koreans will agree to meet. When in fact, they're the ones who proposed it, right? And that's what they did in the 90s. They would propose a meeting with the... Uh, UN world food program and the world food Progr- program would say, wow, it must be pretty bad in North Korea. Yeah, let's meet. And then the North Koreans a week into it or two weeks later would say, well, we don't know if we really want to meet. Now, keep in mind, the North Koreans are the ones starving. Okay, the people who work on the world food program, they're getting three hots in a cot. They don't need the meeting. They just want to distribute food to people who are hungry. And the North Koreans two weeks later will say, well, we don't, you know, I, we're not quite sure. Is there anything else you could offer? And then the world food program says, Oh, all right, we'll bring 20,000 units of insulin or something like that. So the North Koreans are masters at getting something before negotiation even starts. Well, he we did it again this week, and they got something. They got something out of the U.S. But in doing so, President Trump um, made a verbal gaffe. He made a verbal slip. And he talked about that if North Korea cooperates, if North Korea plays its cards right, and denuclearizes that the U.S. would be willing to give it a security assurances, and that the U.S. would really like to see the so the quote Libya model close quote employed North Korea. This is Trump saying this without filter and without delay, saying to world cameras that the Libya model might be in store for Kim Jong Un. The Libya model might be what's good for North Korea. Well, for the U.S. We're thinking denuclearize in Qaddafi style. For the North Koreans, when they heard Libya model, they heard, oh, you mean wind up being pulled out of a drainage ditch and then uh, violated rectally and shot in the head like Muammar Qaddafi? So bit of a mistranslation, a bit of a miscommunication between the uh, the U.S. Uh, and the North Koreans. So uh, I'll, I'll get to more of this here in just a second. I'll play for you what uh, President Trump said. And I'll, I'll, rewind, I'll remind you what the Libya model is for getting rid of nukes and what the Libya model is for getting rid of a dictator. They're both the Libya model. Uh, it just depends on uh, who the audience is. Back right after this, it is a dark secret place. Brian Suits in here. Until midnight in KFI AM 640, more stimulating talk. Six forty more stimulating talk. It is a dark secret place. Brian suits in here until midnight. Then weekend coast to coast takes over, and so the um, bit of a miscommunication. Uh, the president has been briefed about uh, the evolution of Muammar Gaddafi from the international pariah and seeker of nuclear weapons to a guy who voluntarily denuclearized. And the uh, UN and the International Atomic Energy Agency call that the the Libya model. Now, here's uh, sort of the the bottom line about what happened. Um, George W. Bush doesn't get a lot of credit for the secondary effect of invading Iraq. But there was a secondary effect for invading Iraq. Um, And in showing that the United States could go on the other side of the world, And not just kick Iraq out of Kuwait with five divisions, plus Brits, plus French, plus a bunch of uh, Arab states and all that. But rather, the United States in 2003 fought a war in Afghanistan. And then, oh, by the way, with the other hand, put two divisions into Iraq, just two divisions, and overthrew the regime. Well, this shocked the crap out of Muammar Gaddafi. In the same way that when Reagan bombed him in 1986 and he wasn't expecting it uh, after after uh, the, a first term and then before that, uh, Jimmy Carter, he wasn't really expecting it. Gaddafi changed his behavior after Reagan bombed him. I mean, full on changed his behavior. Made a lot of enemies in the world of terrorism because he told a lot of them, sorry, it's been fun. It's been real and it's been fun, but it hasn't been fun real. Uh, so when... Saddam was overthrown, and then he wound up the other end of a rope. There were three states that changed their behavior immediately. One of them, by the way, Ukraine, uh, it had nothing to do with the overthrow of Saddam. The Ukrainians inherited nuclear weapons from the old Soviet Union. They didn't want them because of the expense uh, and uh, the risk and the whole thing. I bet they wish they'd kept them now, but uh, regardless, the Ukrainians... By 2003 and 2004, had said to the IAEA, can you know, please, what do we do with these? Uh, we want them out of the country, and so they wound up, uh, at Richland, Washington, at the Hanford Nuclear Reserve, uh, which is where Saddam's yellow cake is, by the way. Qaddafi saw what happened and he contacted the UN through his ambassadors and said, I need you to get here and certify me denuclearized. So the uh, International Atomic Energy Agency. Uh, Dr. Mohamed Baradeh, an Egyptian, who, by the way, if you don't know this, the Libyans and the Egyptians, not huge friends. But in spite of the fact that the head of the IAEA was an Egyptian, Qaddafi said, come to my country, I'll I'll open up the doors to my nuclear program, and uh, you can help me dismantle it and get rid of it. As it turns out, Qaddafi was far more, uh, he had made far more progress, quality progress towards gaining a nuclear weapon than anyone had thought. He he really wasn't on a lot of international radar for Guy likely to have nuclear weapons. But as it turns out, he was very, very close. I mean, by, by very, very close, I mean, he had everything in place. He had the centrifuges. Um, he had the delivery systems. And he had uh, the, the actual weapon designs that he had paid for from Pakistan and the whole thing. Uh, and so it was a matter of just putting your nose to the grindstone um, and in- enriching the uranium, which is a, a, a almost algebraic scale. It takes a lot of work to get to 10%. <clears throat> it takes half as much work to get to 20%. It takes uh, a fifth as much to get to 30 40 50 You see what I'm saying? And as, so he had to just get going on that. And once he got going on that, it pretty much guarantees that the U.S. is not going to invade you, right? Does it not now? If uh, Kim Il-sung is the one who showed that to us, I'm sorry, Kim Jong-il, the middle Kim, because after he positively tested uh, an atomic bomb, we were not going to invade him. So that's what Qaddafi wanted. But Qaddafi figured, well, you know what? I'm still years away from that. I'll just get rid of him. and I'll be a good guy. So the IAEA goes there. They dismantle the program. Again, like I say, they were shocked at how advanced he was. But once he denuclearized, we took him off the terrorist list. Uh, Libya stopped being an international pariah. Uh, Qaddafi's son, uh, I forgot which one, was part owner of a prominent Italian uh, professional uh, soccer team. Uh, The Libyans were investing in in Italian uh, armaments companies. Things like that. They got the the world opened up to them because they stopped being a terrorist state. In fact, Qaddafi. Uh, was even extremely cooperative with the CIA in fighting al-Qaeda. Uh, and word is that um, the uh, refueling stop for quite a few uh, extraordinary rendition flights went through Tripoli. But, uh, of course, we'll never know that. So imagine Gaddafi's shock when the Arab Spring metastasizes uh, out of Tunisia next door uh, some six years ago. And it spreads to Libya. I mean, you're no kind of dictator if you let that crap happen, right? So he makes a mistake of using his air force to strafe demonstrators so instead of being a uh, instead of being Assad-like and just mowing them down with riot police. He strafes them. Obama was having nothing, nothing uh, of that. He drew a line, and we gave the rebels uh, NATO for a year. And uh, fa- uh, uh, fast forward a year later, Gaddafi is pulled out of a drainage ditch and he's shot in the head after someone literally. There's a video of this. Someone literally took a piece of rebar and did a prostate exam with him uh, in, the, in the moments before they shot him in the head. I'm not saying it couldn't happen to a nicer guy. I'm just saying if you are a dictator and you're dealing with the U.S. now in 2018 and someone says Libya model to you, what are you thinking? Are you thinking uh, that it's two separate things, that there's denuclearize and then you can buy a soccer team in Italy? Or are you thinking denuclearize and you can get an iron bar up your booty? So it was the wrong thing to say, and that's what the, uh, that's what the president said. The, the problem uh, strategically, if you're negotiating, uh, and I've been talking about this with Handel on Tactical Tuesdays, uh, is you, you now, um, if you have placed a premium on even having the meeting, if that has become your focus on just getting in the same room with the guy, not the end result, not what do we get out of the meeting, not will the meeting be worth a damn, but if, if you have laid so much importance on the meeting itself uh, that you allow yourself to be baited uh, by uh, the other side, then you have to give things up to make sure the meeting happens. So fast forward to yesterday, the United States has a, an exercise that has been uh, on the books for, for months. Um, it's a U.S.-South Korean exercise and a U.S.-Japanese exercise. Part of the exercise was going to involve B-52s taken off from Anderson Air Force Base in Guam and being escorted or protected by South Korean fighters. And then the other part of the exercise is same thing, but with Japanese fighters so that we can prove interoperability. Well, the South Koreans said, "Um, we want out. We we feel like that's too much of a provocation right now, which is a mistake because you're telling the North Koreans – um, look, our, this meeting is so important. Just having the meeting is so important. We'll alter our exercises. Well, the U.S. did the same thing, and we canceled the B-52 part. So effectively, the North Koreans are now dictating. After they agreed to allow it to to not protest these exercises, they're now dictating what can and uh, and and cannot be done as part of an exercise. So uh, that's that's your update on that. It doesn't bode well. Uh, it, it It's not a correct setup. This this is something that we have learned for decades about North Koreans, and it seems like we have an entirely new crew, um, including John Bolton, uh, who should know better but are are not uh, are not acting like they've ever seen this playbook uh, ever uh, before. Uh, we'll be back right after this. It is a dark secret place. Brian sits in here until midnight, KFI, AM 640, more stimulating talk. All right, maybe you have to be really deep in the weeds to know what, uh, what movie this is the theme to. KFI aims like 40 more stimulating talk. It is The Dark Secret Place. And uh, in the next break, I'll tell you about the uh, 75th anniversary of the famous Dam Busters raid in 1943 where the RAF um, breached uh, several German hydroelectric dams commemorated in a 1955 movie. Called the Dambusters. So I'll tell you about that because there's a bit of a bit of a kerfuffle uh, because of one one aspect of the movie, and it's it, the movie's iconic in Britain, um, almost you know pretty obscure here in the U.S. But there's one aspect of the movie, very very accurate movie, um, by the way, a little too accurate because the squadron commander, the main the main character in the movie, main character in in real life. He had a black Labrador retriever with a rather unfortunate name, uh, even in 1955. Uh, so will or will the, the, the British are releasing the movie for a one-time showing? It's the 75th anniversary of the actual raid. Will they leave the name of the dog in the movie uh, or not? And uh, wow, I, um, I'm really surprised Michael Chappé made it to work. Uh, we were up at, at 2 a.m. getting ready for our uh, royal wedding party. And uh, I don't know how late did you? I I made it to about nine a.m. Did you? Um, I, last I saw yeah, you, right. I was face down in the couch. <laughs> I don't know. I
1: was watching eleven o'clock news <laughs> and they were at a bar and people were in pajamas and tiaras and stuff. And I'm going, well, I did make a note of the type of people that they were uh, showing on camera, and then, and it was you know wasn't a, a very I did, flattering. You know what I saw?
0: BBC did a LA hit. Yeah. Um they did a hit to the Cat and Fiddle. Now the, of course there's the classic Cat and Fiddle. Yeah, that's not the same one, right? No, the classic right. one that was here for 30 years on Hollywood Boulevard. Loved that place. Closed about 2 years ago. There's a new one on uh not on Fairfax. I think it's on wow. Los Los Cienega. Wow. Run Highland. Um, it's but it's called the Cat and Fiddle. It's the same owners, whole thing. I was but, waiting
1: for them to go out to the fountain and talk to people. At the Cat and Fiddle, uh, yeah, because that's not the one.
0: And I kind of thought they might have gone to the other place, the Rose down here on Ventura, which is a really good English bar. But Cat and Fiddle, in name only. I mean, it's still it's still a fine place. How about the King's Head in Santa Monica? Oh yeah, yeah, famous uh, Brit restaurant here. They they came out and they did. Uh, they caught up, of course, to all these Brits at the Cat and Fiddle at four a.m. Um, and 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 also Angelinos, people from the city of Angels, <laughs> like just like Meghan Markle is from the city of the Angels. She's an Angelino, and uh, so they're getting that. And so Harry uh, wore the uniform, the uh, tunic, the walking out tunic of a uh, major of cavalry of the Blues and Royals, uh, and so his uh, his brother Prince William, the future King of England, the uh, Duke of Cambridge, also wore <clears throat> uh, the same rank, a major. In the Blues and Royals uh, Cavalry, uh, but if you if you notice uh, that William was wearing the gold braid, uh, which means that he's an ADC, an aide de camp, because he is the aide de camp to the Queen, and so that's uh, the the nomenclature and the reason uh, for that. that uh, otherwise, they were basically wearing the same uniform as sort of a uh, a mark of respect for each other. And then the the boys, William's two sons, were the page boys. They were carrying the veil or the train or whatever, Meghan Markle's uh, wedding dress, they were also wearing uniforms of the blues and royals, but they're only like, uh, whatever, they're, they're like seven and four. So they had, they, they literally needed permission of the queen. The queen had to sign off on her grandsons, or I'm sorry, her great-grandson's, uh, wearing that uniform, so that uh, that is what happened.
1: Do you think they know all the titles and all the little ins and outs of I, what this means and that?
0: I think I think those kids. I think because they're immersed in it all the time. I I bet you they sure as hell know more than than uh, David Muir on ABC. I flipped through that dip uh, <laughs> through that hairdo several times, and he sounded like he was making it up. And I I finally I mean I stuck with BBC America. And good Lord, do those people know absolutely everything. Oh, really? Wow. I mean, every damn thing about the inside the nave versus the wainscoting of the... Uh, so you did watch it. Oh, I had, I did. Yeah, I'm a sucker for this crap. No. Oh, yeah. It was inculcated into me by my mom. My mom uh, was Canadian. Canadian, right. Tunneled out uh, in, in, in her 30s. <laughs> tunneled out. But my mom never left behind. And that's the thing. In the same way that Americans... Have you know a lump in our throat when we hear the national anthem play.
1: I don't get Canadians it.
0: Canadians just can't cut the cord. And the Queen is on their money, um, and, and on their passports and the whole thing. And they
1: aren't they a commonwealth still. Yeah,
0: and they do. They go bonkers. When William and what's his what's her name? Uh visited a couple years ago, the Canadians uh went bonkers. Uh they go bonkers in Australia, they go bonkers in New Zealand. Even though there's lots of cynical Aussies going, oh, I don't need them. They put me great, great, great gramps on a ship to put me by and all that. No, they, they love it when a Royal gets off a plane. They love it. The Canadians do. And so my mom, it was in my mom <clears throat> uh, pretty, pretty hard. And so I do, I do get uh, uh, excited. But then again, though, here's the thing. I'm an Anglophile. And the other deal that I know about the Brits is that nobody does this stuff like them. The North Koreans might have numbers. They might have robotic numbers. So those could all be marionettes for all we know. But when the British do something with pomp and circumstance and they shine their breastplates at the household cavalry and they put on their really, really amazing hats and they ride their gigantic horses, nobody does it like them.
1: And, and nobody gets threatened with death uh, anymore these days.
0: No, no. But and in th-
1: North Korea, maybe not.
0: Yeah. And 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 they the, the Brits, when they do the Trooping of the Color or the Passing Review or the Queen's Birthday – uh they they do it better than anybody else. And it's the thing is like if you're not gonna if you're not gonna match them, don't even try. Which is like the Israeli stances, is, eh, don't even tuck in your shirt. Just what just get a haircut or not. I why why try? But the Brits, it's part of their tradition and they're just extremely good. And all the units that do it, unlike some show pony, like the Vatican Guards or something, the British units that actually do that stuff, they're actual combat units. They either it just came back from a deployment, or they're on their way to one. But in between, they go, "Oh, by the way, chaps, we have to provide a, a gar- an escort of honor for uh, the uh, the Duke and Duchess of Sussex, uh, Harry and Meghan." Don't you know? So polish up your breastplate, and uh, and they do that stuff just amazingly well. Did I'm you looking...
1: learn anything watching the the BBC America, like <laughs> s- some fascinating
0: points? Mm, or just mildly interested. Uh did I? I th- well, I I did learn the thing about the uniforms. That they were both wearing major insignia, even though the Duke of Cambridge could have outranked his brother because he literally does outrank him. But that, as a mark of respect for each other, they wore the same rank. And that's something that I, I flipped through. No other American network caught that. They should have. They have no excuse because they're not employing me. They should have employed me because I knew they were wearing uh, major insignia. But the Brit said, here's why. And then the other thing I learned... At the end of the day, did you see that footage of Harry and Meghan coming out to the classic Jaguar? Yes. Do you know what the deal was?
1: I know that that was a converted to electric.
0: Power. Um, it, What it was was when when they came out, I went, oh, good Lord. That's a cool car. Now he's 007. Now right. no man has a hope of ever getting laid. <laughs> and, and you know, he, op- he opens the door for Meghan. She gets in. He gets in. And I was expecting to hear a Jaguar roar but nice there was 12 cylinder. There was no roar. Cuz that original car, the XKE had a V12. There was no roar. It just kind of rolled off. That was the new uh E-Type. It's almost criminal. Series 0. It's a new electric I know it sounded like someone cut the nuts off a Jaguar. Uh but uh, anyway, that's that's what that was. He got an electric oh. Jaguar. But by the way, left-hand drive. Did you catch that? left-hand drive don't you know yeah shop.
1: i did because she was uh camera side and that
0: was yeah the, the right
1: side the passenger side you're right jag, i didn't even notice that
0: jag probably is not even going to do a right-hand drive run they think they're going to sell all of these uh, in the u.s so. Isn't?
1: aren't the brits and the australians the only one to do that
0: um yeah and oh, the, wrong side I'm the japanese oh japanese are wrongsiders. siders really yeah
1: i've never seen a uh left or I'm sorry, right-hand drive uh, Toyota or anything. No,
0: you, know? you you can see you have to go to Japan. You can you buy them, but uh, yeah, they're uh, that, that the Japanese drive on the uh, on, on the uh, on the left side.
1: That's that's what that's what this is coming to. It's like you know, we've got an American now a royal, and they're driving electric jags. Yeah.
0: Um, all right. Uh, so I saw Deadpool too. I have a I have a 10 mm. second review when we come back. Um, but also the 75th anniversary of the very actual mission, the Dam Buster's which led to a movie that the British showed uh, on Thursday, a one-time showing, a restoral of the classic movie, The Dam Busters. Will they or will they not include the name of the squadron commander's dog? I don't think so. Which is not a word we say in America
1: anymore. Right. I Rar. think I know what word you're thinking. You said mm-hmm. he, he was a Labrador, right? Yep, a yeah. black one. Yeah, they're not going to yeah. do that. They can't do
0: that. I wonder. The answer may surprise you right after this. It's a dark secret place. Brian Suits in here until midnight, KFI, AM 640. More stimulating talk. Oh, my God. in here uh until midnight then coast coast weekend uh well here's my quick movie review of deadpool 2 go see it there uh if you like deadpool definitely go see deadpool 2 it's actually funnier they had to make it funnier uh and definitely stay for the end credit scenes because those are actually part of the movie if you miss the four end credit scenes uh you will actually miss the real ending of the movie that's all i'm gonna say Speaking of movies, in uh, Britain, I know there was kind of a big event in Britain today, but uh, in 1955, the movie The Dam Busters was released, and the British uh, had a single one-day-only 4K restoration of the movie The Dam Busters that played on uh, on Thursday, on the 17th of May. And why? Uh, well, because it's the 75th anniversary of the actual mission. Uh, on the night of the 16th and 17th of May 1943, uh, the British uh, 609 Squadron, um, henceforth called the Dambusters, executed a really, really, really extraordinary mission. I mean, really, truly, something that will go down in history, uh, in the in world history, in, in the history of war. Um, and it's funny because the movie The Dambusters <clears throat> um, is it's a it's a bit of a uh, acquired taste. It's hard to find. Uh, I'm not. I can't tell you if it's on Netflix or not. Um, here's a little bit of the promo for the 75th anniversary show. Pardon me the the, uh, the anniversary showing that they did on Thursday night. Here's a, here's a bit of a taste of the Dam Busters. Do you mean that a bomb can bounce along the water like a ping pong ball? That's no good. It's too short. You're going to attack the great dams of western Germany. So, yes, uh, the the real mission was to destroy several hydroelectric dams al- uh, in, in the Ruhr and along the Ruhr River uh, of Germany. These would be the dams that provided electricity to uh, coal mines, steel factories, and other, other factories of war. Uh, the, the concept, obviously, it, you know, the British were, were saying, well— you know, we're not bombing tactically. We're not bombing armored divisions. We're bombing the tank factories. And then the U.S. Air Force said, well, why are we bombing aircraft factories, ship factories, and tank factories? Why aren't we bombing ball-bearing factories? Because none of those things run without ball bearings. And the British said, never mind ball-bearing factories. Why aren't we bombing the hydroelectric dams? Because none of the factories, even the ball-bearing factories, don't run if they don't have electricity. So a genius British inventor named Barnes Wallace um, conceived of a type of bomb specifically to take out a dam. And what he conceived of initially was inspired by uh, the way that uh, stones skip on a river or the ocean, on on still water. And he said, why do they skip? They skip because they're rotating, because they're spinning. So what if you took a bomb, maybe a spherical bomb, and you spun it backwards and you dropped it on the water uh, because the reason was the dams were protected by torpedo nets. You know, the Germans had thought of this. So they said, we have to get over those nets. So what if we had bombs that skipped? When you dropped them at the right altitude, they would skip over the torpedo nets and uh, then would hit the dam, sink 200 feet below, and with all that water pressure behind them, they would explode and if not weaken the dam, uh destroy it instantly anyway uh and so the, uh, the the concept was sound no one believed it at first when he proposed it they thought he was wacky uh, which he was but he was a wacky genius and the shape of the bomb turned from uh from a sphere to a cylinder like a beer can um and the aircraft began spinning it in the bomb bay the pilots dropped to a preset altitude and you'll have to see the movie to see how they, because it's genius, the way the way they did it, um, the way they set the exact altitude to guarantee the correct number of skips was absolute genius. But the big kerfuffle here is that when the movie came out in 1955, true to real life, the squadron commander had a black Labrador retriever, a beautiful black lab. The name of the dog was N-word, and it's in the movie. Now, in American versions, when it's shown on TV, usually they will edit it. They'll dub the word Trigger, and suddenly the dog's name is Trigger. But that wasn't the dog's name. So what were they going to do on Thursday in Britain? Well, the British Board of Film Review let, the, uh, let it go. They said that's the original, uh, this is the original movie from 1955. That was the dog's name in real life. Uh, by the way, spoiler alert, the dog is hit by a car in a very, very sad scene. Uh, but uh, anyway, um, so that was the, the controversy um, uh, about the movie. Did we edit that word out? Well, they didn't. They left it in. Um, so anyway, if you can see it, the, the, the music is iconic. The iconic uh, Dan Buster's music is sung by British uh, football fans, especially when they're on the continent of Europe, usually playing the Germans. Uh, but uh, it is the 75th anniversary of the actual mission. The, the end result, by the way, the dams were breached. The electricity was interrupted. But what the British had not counted on was that, of course, Germany had slave labor. And they didn't care how many people died rebuilding the dams. So they did rebuild the dams actually in pretty short order, like in five or six months. And they were, they were up and running. Uh, but uh, anyway, the actual achievement itself was pretty astounding. The movie is great. Just don't be shocked. When the guy calls his dog with a really, really loud voice... Uh, don't be shocked. Anyway, Damn Busters, 1955. Check it out. Leslie Howard. Um, back right after this, hour number two. Uh, guess who Guess who won the election in Iraq? Uh, the guy that blew me up in 2005. Uh, I'll tell you about that right after this. Hour number two, Dark Secret Place, right after this, KFI AM 640, more stimulating talk. KFI AM 640, more stimulating talk. It is the Dark Secret Place, hour number two. Brian Suits in here. Uh, Until midnight, the weekend coast-to-coast takes over. Uh, So a couple different coalitions have come together in the wake of Iraq's first election, uh, sort of post-ISIS. And the winning list, as they say, because uh, in the the way that the Iraqi constitution was written, you voted for a list of candidates uh, representing uh, all the different districts that they're running in so you you basically voted for a party and so the parties that won are the Muqtada Sadr party um the uh, the current version of what we we called the uh, the madi uh, party the Mahdi army in 2004 and five and then another political party uh representing the Iranian-sponsored militias, the Popular Mobilization Units or PMUs, the biggest party there, the Fatah party, um, uh, also winning. And so the way it works in a parliament, and this is definitely the Achilles' heel of democracy, as I believe the uh, the uh, parliament of uh, Germany will uh, will attest the uh, the Reichstag of 1932. The Achilles heel of a parliamentary democracy is whoever has the plurality of votes, not not a simple majority of 51%, but if you won 40%, all you need is to go around and find the party that won 11%, and you have won yourself a majority and you won yourself a government. In this case, the uh, the guy who was the nemesis, of American forces in 2004 and 2005, uh, Muqtada Sadr, uh, the, the leader of the Shia militia called the Mahdi army. The Mahdi is the 12th Imam, the mythical, uh, or according to the Quran, the very real 12th Imam who will uh, usher in Armageddon and the rapture by presenting himself uh, back here on the earth. And so the Mahdi army, the Jaish al-Mahdi, Mahdi, for the guys that we were fighting in April of 2004, um, I lost a lot of friends and I, I lost a lot of hearing to uh, Muqtada Sadr's guys. Well, now he is the leader of Iraq. He, uh, his party, his list, as, as they say, uh, defeated Prime Minister al-Abadi, who was doing a great job and who rallied his government into beating ISIS and taking back all the ISIS-occupied territories, uh, of course, including Mosul uh and talafar and the rest <clears throat> but uh he's out he's out and the guy responsible for the deaths of 3 to 4000 americans is now the leader of iraq the country that uh we uh, changed the regime and changed their entire government into a democracy there was no way that iraq when they had their constitutional convention was going to come out as a military uh, dictatorship they they came out a parliamentary democracy. And uh, this is what happens. So I'm not I'm not real happy about this. But um, here's what I'm going to play for you. A, a friend of mine, um, a a former U.S. Army Ranger, a guy who I know uh, that we served with uh, in the Oregon Army National Guard, um, 2nd Battalion, 162nd Infantry. He was on NPR. He was on government radio yesterday on uh, their afternoon show called All Things Considered uh, and so I have to give <clears throat> attribution to them, but uh, he was speaking about the the feeling that thousands of American soldiers and Marines feel in hearing the news that Muqtada Sadr is now the recipient of the uh, he's now the beneficiary of democracy um, in Iraq. A guy who killed three to four thousand Americans who who uh, sacrificed their lives to make a better Iraq is now the beneficiary. Uh, of of Iraq, if you can place your mind, if you can wrap your mind around that irony. So anyway, here is uh, uh, my friend Peter Salerno talking. I, I've I've cobbled him together uh, into one long minute and a half uh, series of thoughts here from uh, NPR from yesterday.
2: Peter Salerno, Master Sergeant with the 162nd Infantry Regiment of the Oregon Army National Guard, he arrived in Iraq a few months later. When we went to An-Najaf to fight the Mahdi Army, the way he he was able to bring in, I mean, just busloads of reinforcements with impunity, uh, he, he, really, uh, he really became uh, quite the nemesis in my book. And then after I became the uh, non-commissioned officer in charge, watching the flow of uh, arms coming in from Iran, especially right before we left, we started seeing the explosively formed platters, the EFP IEDs, which were just—they're absolutely devastating—and there's virtually no defense against them. So, yeah, he was uh, quite the enemy in my book, and it would have been a, would have made my job a lot easier if he had somehow managed to get killed along the way. What thoughts cross your mind when my battalion left Iraq in March of '05, when we went down to Kuwait? It was right after the elections in 2005 in February, and uh, I honestly believed that all the blood and treasure at that point had been worth it. My interpreters were coming in on election day, and they were, they were literally crying. They were so happy. They, uh, they were hugging us. They were telling us, this is the greatest day in Iraq, and I honestly thought we had done something good. And over the years, just watching it unravel the way it has has been absolutely heartbreaking. It's really interesting to hear you as a soldier express uh, grudging respect for the militia that you were up against that was responsible for the deaths of your friends.
0: Uh, Eric
2: Eric is absolutely correct. They're ingenious. (laughs) I was was always constantly amazed. They would conduct an ambush. We'd get hit. We'd come up with techniques to counter it. They'd counter it within a week. They were very smart, very smart fighters. (laughs) They were a worthy, worthy opponent.
0: All right, a lot, a lot more after this, but that's my friend Peter Salerno on NPR yesterday talking about his feelings uh, seeing Muqtada Sadr now, now as the uh, prime minister, apparent uh, of uh, Iraq, uh, the, the country that he and I uh, were, were wounded in, lost friends uh, trying to establish a democratic government. And apparently we did a good enough job uh, because Muqtada Sadr won an election. Uh, All right, we'll be back. I've got a lot more thoughts on this. Uh, We'll get to it right after this. It's the dark secret place. Brian suits in here until midnight on KFI AM 640. More stimulating talk. Michael Chappé with the news. KFI AM 640. More stimulating talk. It is the dark secret place. Brian suits in here until midnight. We'll get to uh, the completion of the sea trials for China's uh, first home-built, homegrown aircraft carrier uh, as yet unnamed what they might name it. Uh, also, uh, for a first, the Chinese, uh, actually temporarily basing bombers on some of their, uh, man-made islands like the aptly named mischief reef, uh, and others. We'll get to that. So I, I played for you in the last break, um, a, a couple segments from, uh, national public radio yesterday from all things considered their afternoon show. And my friend, uh, Pete Salerno, master sergeant, uh, a, a, a phenomenal NCO, a, just an absolutely extraordinary NCO. I was a, uh, a staff sergeant underneath him in E6. Uh, then I went to uh, OCS. Um, he was the platoon sergeant of a good friend of mine uh, who I actually met in OCS. And when we, when we <clears throat> actually got together in Iraq, I found out that Pete Salerno was his platoon sergeant. I told him. Uh, you're gonna be fine. That that guy uh, is uh, probably one of the best NCOs I've ever met. And then after after their deployment, he reported back to me and said, "Yep, you're absolutely right. Pete Salerno was uh, one of the best guys I've ever seen uh, in, in any context. Never mind combat. In combat, he was a, a, a different in a different league." But um, so uh, what he was saying in the clips that I played expressing his disappointment in seeing our nemesis, our enemy, in 2004 and 2005, Muqtada Sadr, elected his political party winning the parliamentary elections uh, in Iraq. He has a great point, a point that I've, I've made since 2005, since the election, which is democracy isn't always pretty. As Churchill said, democracy is the worst form of government unless you compare it to all the others. And I'm paraphrasing. You know, keep in mind that uh, Slobodan Milosevic, um, he was freely elected uh, in in Serbia. Um, And that after we began bombing Belgrade and Serbia, Milosevic lost an election. So uh, we were bombing a democracy, as it turns out, Uh, even though we like portraying Milosevic as a bad guy. So, <clears throat> democracy is not, you know, the be-all, end-all. I, I, I get that. I mean, it is for me. I'll lay my life down for American democracy. Um, but then again, in nineteen ninety-one, I laid my life down to restore a monarch, to put a, to put a king back on the throne in Kuwait. I, I get that. You know, my it's been very complex. The world's been very complex since the Soviet Union collapsed. But in uh, in two thousand five, when we uh, s- stood by and and uh, provided security for the Iraqis' first election. Um, I, I you know I'm not going to lie to you li- like Pete Salerno said in the last break. Um, you know it was thrilling. It was thrilling seeing my translators so excited. It was thrilling seeing old men in, in my case these two old brothers who wanted to vote before they died on January 30th, 2005. And and though we weren't supposed to go within a mile of a polling place. We escorted them there, and then after they voted, they posed for a picture uh, with me, and I'll I'll post that on on uh, Twitter uh, tonight. So my 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 feelings, uh, like Salerno's, are are um are very complex. I'm I'm still proud of what I did, and uh, maybe for the Iraqis, the uh, democracy that we didn't impose on them, but uh, it was pretty clear when they put together their constitutional convention that the United States. Was not going to walk away um, with a uh, Iraq um, under a single party rule. Uh, that there was going to be a democracy. Uh, the the difference and this is always a complaint I had with the occupation, because when I occupied Bosnia, we called it a peacekeeping mission. Well, that was complete bullcrap. We were occupiers, full on. Uh, we oversaw democratic elections. There was going to be no. There was no other alternative. We occupied Bosnia, and in fact, we had more power in Bosnia than I had in Iraq. I, I kind of wish that we had occupied Iraq the way we did Bosnia or the way my dad occupied Japan. But, <clears throat> um, but as, as it was, um, the Iraqis uh, split up ethnically uh, and uh, sect-wise, Shia and Sunni at that first election, and the Sunnis uh, out in Anbar province didn't participate. Uh, they saw a, uh, almost a Shia dictatorship takeover, and that created a lot of uh, bitterness um, in 2005 and 6. In, in the interim, uh, I, I've had my translators, who all now live in the U.S., explain that in a weird way, maybe ISIS was Iraq's war of independence. Maybe America overthrowing a guy that Iraqis should have overthrown um, what, it didn't go down so well. It was, it was bad medicine. But maybe the near collapse of Iraq at the hands of ISIS, if, you're, if you recall four years ago how close that was, uh, maybe that was their real actual war of independence. Because Muqtada Sadr, though the guy owes his uh, money and power to Iran, um, part of what his platform was, was I'll be kicking all the foreigners out, and that includes the Iranians. So uh, Iraq would be a better place if that happened. Um, I'm, I'm now very cynical about it. But uh, I have no doubt in my mind that what just happened was a very actual democratic exercise that, uh, that Muqtada Sadr um, uh, was the, the Donald Trump of Iraq. He said what people wanted to hear, uh, and they made a choice with their hearts, not their brains. And they got rid of a guy who was actually a very effective prime minister, uh, Haider al-Abadi. But that's how democracy works. And like Salerno said in that last break, it's not always pretty, but that's democracy. All right. When we come back, the Chinese flexing their muscle in the South China Sea and some new muscles uh, at that. We'll be back right after this. It is a dark secret place. Brian sits in here until midnight. KFI AM 640 more stimulating talk. Michael Chape with the news. KFI AM 640 more stimulating talk. It is a dark secret place. Brian suits in here until midnight and uh, it's become customary here uh at the uh, the bottom of the second hour to catch up on the Chinese in the South China Sea uh when 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 last we talked uh the Chinese of course had terraformed some coral reefs into major military bases all of them with extremely long runways and uh, not for commercial aircraft by the way not for uh, commercial tourist flights and it has been though the runways have been Completed now, uh, in most cases, over two years ago, and the Chinese have definitely uh, temporarily based fighter planes there with with offensive and defensive capabilities. Uh, they were clearly doing that to test the waters. just like when they when they first began terraforming the first coral reef in the middle of international waters, they were sticking their toe in the water to see if anyone objected. Well, okay, uh, the Philippines made a peep. And Vietnam made a peep, but no one paid attention. And since the United States didn't apparently care, the Chinese went ahead and built military bases and then claimed territorial rights, uh, uh, 12 nautical mile limit, uh, you know, uh, 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 zones around the islands. And uh, uh, even though it was crystal clear that that the islands were being made a lot bigger than they had to be uh, to base naval vessels. No one wanted to think about uh, the obvious, which was that the Chinese were building um, effectively fixed aircraft carriers for bombers and other large aircraft that they were building runways far larger than fighters needed. They were building runways up to two miles long uh, required for heavy bombers, Um, heavy bombers laden with fuel and weapons needing a two mile run. To, uh, to get off a runway. Um, it was the obvious. Everyone was looking at it uh, like your hand in front of your face. But the Chinese finally uh, did send uh, their version of heavy bombers to Mischief Reef, uh, one, one of the, the three major bases in the South China Sea. Uh, the Chinese employ a old 1950s-era Soviet bomber. Back in the day, it was the uh, Tu-16 Badger. A large twin-engined bomber that the uh, it was it was uh, the first major jet engine Russian bomber and it was a very successful design for the Russians though overwhelmingly um, they're all out of service uh, now in the now Russian Air Force no longer the Soviet Air Force um, and a few exist in training and reconnaissance roles but by and large the Russians have settled on the Tu ninety five Bear the uh, <clears throat> the eight engine uh that uh, that was intercepted last week uh between the uh, between Alaska and and Russia uh the Russians are very very happy with the Tu-95 fuel economy um payload everything they uh, they're they like it besides the Tu-160 which looks just like a B-1 uh, but they've only got uh, 20 of those uh so anyway the Chinese uh, have redesignated this Russian bomber the uh, the Tu-16 Badger it's, it's the H-6, and when I say bomber, that's kind of a misnomer. Uh, the purpose of a large heavy payload aircraft uh, in this day and age is uh, basically as a high-altitude truck that is going to carry standalone uh, uh, either cruise missiles, anti-ship missiles, or what are called uh, standoff missiles, missiles that you, uh, you launch. Uh, they go to a operational area, they loiter for a couple hours, and they're autonomous, and they can decide what and when to attack. Those are those are standoff weapons uh versus uh you know direct attack weapons. So that's that's really the purpose of a bomber in this day and age. So uh so keeping in mind that we do the same thing with the B 52s, uh, and B one Bs and uh, and B twos. The the notion of a B2, uh Actually, flying directly over target and dropping bombs like a B seventeen in World War II. thats not what they do, and that's not what they're intended to do. Yes, they were doing it in Afghanistan because there was zero air defense threat. But because any other enemy on Earth is going to have some kind of air defense, um, most of our weapons now are what are called standoff uh, weapons. And so, uh, but but nevertheless, if you can cut your mission time in half. By forward deploying your bombers, like, for instance, instead of leaving the Chinese province island of uh, Inan or Hainan in the uh, in the South China Sea uh, right near Vietnam, um, that would be three hours away from being able to launch missiles against Australia. But what if you could cut an hour and a half of flight time off and base those bombers uh, on uh, one of the islands in the South China Sea? Well, um, that's what the Chinese have done uh, and so f- for the first time ever they have flown bombers down to these islands um, they didn't make a secret of it it was on Chinese central TV it was on Chinese military TV in fact it was a bit of a triumph uh, because they were saying you know that that finally that's what these are are, uh, are are meant to do this is ultimately this is what the islands are meant to be are stepping stones extending the range of Chinese power and so uh, each one of them represents um, basically an, an hour's less flight time. So if if you are going to launch against the Philippines or Vietnam or whatever, you would at least pre-position bombers to these islands, and that would give you flexibility. It would give you uh, also quick mission turnaround time. If you're if China decides to launch uh, to go to war with Vietnam, uh, now they have bombers that are only uh, half an hour from their launch point uh and well yeah but aren't we going to see the bombers on these chinese islands well maybe maybe not um uh, satellites can't see through clouds reconnaissance aircraft can't get close enough if the uh chinese fighters are are warning you away so the the chinese are showing the proof of concept of these islands by sending bombers there the next step by the way uh, would be reinforcing the islands with troops so expect that next uh and that would be uh uh Practicing uh, the defending the islands against an American assault because the, that's the other thing is you look at these islands and you say well that's a pretty easy nut to crack uh, we just invade we we put a uh, we put a battalion of Marines on there well what if the Chinese brought a brigade of Marines and then you have what Iwo Jima 2.0 um, so the the Chinese obviously this is part of their war plan they're going to practice that next the second Chinese carrier this is the one that they reverse engineered the old surplus Russian carrier that has been repurposed as the Liao the first Chinese carrier. The second one just completed five days of sea trials um, in the Yellow Sea between Korea and China. It does not have a name yet. Um, the uh, odds-on favorite name would be the Long March. Uh, the Liao is named after an actual province, uh, but the, the Chinese have named warships after things and people and the uh, the long march is the legendary defining moment of the Chinese Communist revolution where Mao Zedong's army uh, marched thousands of miles, losing hundreds and thousands uh, of soldiers doing so to uh, to get to refuge where they could uh, uh, rebuild their strength. so that's the odds on favors the uh, the long march. It will be very similar to their current carrier, the Liaonang, uh and then it will also be a technology uh, testbed so. Uh, that now they have two carriers. The next step is getting the uh, the air wing to go on this one, to getting the, the pilots trained to land on this one and take off. We'll be back right after this. Uh, ISIS surrendering, but to who? That more coming up. It is a dark secret place. Brian suits back here one more time on KFI AM 640. More stimulating talk. Michael Chappé with the news. KFI AM 640. More stimulating talk. It is a dark secret place. Brian sits in here. Uh, one last time, then coast to coast weekend takes over. I'll be back tomorrow night at 8 p.m. for Super Hyper Local Sunday, and uh, we we already have uh the car accidents and the murders. It looks like uh, this is going to be a fairly bloody weekend, breaking a uh, a a pattern that we've had of, of fairly bloodless weekends in in L.A. But anyway, meanwhile in Damascus, uh, there is a suburb of uh, Damascus, the capital of Syria, called Yarmouk, and uh, ISIS established a foothold there pretty early on, almost six years ago, when ISIS popped up in Syria, uh, when the former Iraqi intelligence guys who created ISIS uh, uh, found the lawless area of, of central and northern Syria for their caliphate to begin. Uh there was a offshoot of ISIS in the Damascus suburbs, though they didn't start as ISIS, but they were highly motivated guys. Um, they were a mixture unlike the rest of ISIS. these guys were a mixture of Sunni and Shia. Most of the Shia guys were Palestinians. There, there's been a Palestinian refugee camp in in Damascus since 1956 and uh, even and that's a pre- six day war refugee camp. Uh, and those Palestinians are Shia, though a lot of them converted um, or began being raised as uh, as Sunni uh, because they disliked Assad and his dad uh, so much. Uh, but so anyway, these these guys were very, very fierce fighters. And uh, early on, the Syrian army called the S.A.A., the Syrian Arab Army, um, they stayed out of this neighborhood. They, they they realized, well, no harm, no foul. Uh, if we lose this neighborhood, we're not really losing much. And they left it alone. Uh, what happened was this ISIS cell uh, then formed their identity as ISIS. They joined ISIS and said, we can be ISIS too, uh, even though they had no direct land link with the so-called caliphate. But what they began doing was launching these, uh, these uh, rocket mortars, these jury-rigged pieces of pipe with bombs on them and uh, filled with propane and other kind of propellants. And they began shooting these random, gigantic mortars into Damascus. And so the Syrians began, and, and this was the, the beginning of barrel bombing happened right there in Damascus. Uh, when the Syrians showed or displayed to anyone's satisfaction that they lacked the precision weaponry to sit there and uh, and and drop bombs within a civilian uh, uh, neighborhood and not cause widespread uh, uh, collateral damage uh, and death and destruction, well, um, when they when they gave up that and they said, you know what, why even try? That's when they began making bombs. Literally out of 55-gallon drums, normally used for oil, filling them with explosives and impact fuses or time fuses and just literally rolling them out of the back of helicopters. Rather than getting up in a fixed-wing plane uh, and having to rely on the skill of the aviator, it was so much easier to go up to about 5,000 feet and then literally hover over the neighborhood that you wanted to drop the bombs on and then roll the barrels out. Uh, And so that was the origin of barrel bombing. And it was this specific neighborhood, Yarmouk. Well, now that ISIS has turned into a raisin, when once they were a big juicy grape, um, the, uh, the men of Yarmouk find themselves absolutely high and dry, and they have finally surrendered. But they did the surrender in the standard Syrian fashion, where they negotiate a surrender. This is also very close, by the way, to the neighborhood that the Syrians gassed. Uh, a couple weeks ago, leading to that missile strike in, in Syria, but they surrendered in a very Syrian fashion in that they promised to take only small arms, take their own personal AKs, take their families with them, but only if Assad provided buses. So he provided buses and and uh, a safe passage. And so they have uh, filled the buses and they've driven east to who knows where uh we we are still the american forces the sdf and the uh, syrian kurds are still on the east bank of the uh euphrates river and these guys sure aren't driving there uh but uh, so anyway the uh, the syrian civil war like i said a couple of months ago uh looks like it's coming to an end here um in 2018 though the the sides that really know what's going on which would be everybody but nato everybody but the us they're already maneuvering for uh, for Syrian civil war 2.0, uh, and that includes Turkey, by the way. So anyway, ISIS as we know it is now down to uh, maybe a couple dozen square miles. Uh, some of their more dynamic leaders are still leading charges and things is idiocy like that. But these are the diehards who want to uh, who want to die in place. And meanwhile, the prisoners, all the Europeans, are being held in an American prison in the east of Syria. At a place called Hasaka. So so that's your ISIS wrap-up right there. Uh, all right. It is a dark secret place. Brian Suits back here next Saturday at 10 p.m. for uh, Saturday Night's number one show, the most downloaded podcast here at KFI. That and more uh, coming up next Saturday. And uh, we will see you. Brian Suits out KFI AM 640. More stimulating talk.